have you with us. If you were here with us last evening, uh, welcome back. And similarly to our live stream audience, we uh, have many people to thank for this event, this series of events. Um, and I just want to highlight at the beginning here, because in a, my, in a moment I'll be speaking about my other colleagues, but uh, the people who are behind the scenes organizing this are not only brilliant scholars in their own right, but remarkable uh, people to deal with the complexities of these events. And so far it's gone so smoothly, and I want to thank, again, um, the, the two primary organizers of this entire symposium, symposium series, which is Lauren Kirby and Sarah Levy-Brightman. So thank you both for your incredible, <laughs> incredible work. I also want to thank the many graduate students uh, related to the Religious Literacy Project who are also doing work behind the scenes. Um, it's been a pleasure and a privilege to work with them. So I, last evening, we uh, had the incredible privilege. This symposium is part of a series, um, and I spoke about that last night. I won't repeat that. But the intersections that we're looking at here in this particular symposium are around religious literacy and humanitarian action. But there's a third prong here, which is local humanitarian leadership. And we had the incredible privilege. This symposium is being sponsored by and supported by Bruce McGever, our alumnus, who we're so grateful for. He's supporting this entire series. But we have a, a parallel project that is funded by the Henry Luce Foundation that we're incredibly grateful for that um, allows for a partnership between the Religious Literacy Project and Oxfam to do a research project on this intersection of humanitarian action, religious literacy, and local humanitarian aid. And I want to say a word about that in a moment. But that focus on local humanitarian leadership is an incredibly complex set of questions. Uh, and our conversations all day yesterday among the participants related to the Luce Grant uh, at the Center for the Study of World Religions yesterday really highlighted both the importance of local humanitarian leadership and also its complications. And it's got me thinking, actually, about this question of what it means to collaborate. And I wanted to say, first of all, the nature of this entire series is focused on the notion of collaboration, which is the belief that we here in the academy, the hope that we here in the academy uh, have something to offer, the larger questions around uh, better understanding of religion in the public sphere, but we also recognize uh, through the Religious Literacy Project and this symposium series that we only have a piece of the, of the puzzle here and that we absolutely need to be in conversation with practitioners across the professions and also scholars of those professions. And so the, again, the literacy, this entire symposium series is focused on this opportunity to bring people from different dimensions of a challenge or an idea together to be in conversation for collaboration. But this notion of collaboration, of course, is itself also quite a complicated one. And in my reflections, especially coming off of my experience with this symposium and yesterday, I, I started to think I, I have now this notion of collaborations have three different dimensions to them, or functional dimensions. Sometimes collaborations are just about efficiency. It's about saying you've got a lot of work to do, and you need partners to do it, and so you divide up tasks, and then you have, you're working together uh, to achieve those tasks. And that's one kind, and again, I don't want to diminish the importance of any of these collaborations, but I want to highlight some challenges that are, I think, inherent in some of them. 
The second kind is about um, resources. Some collaborations are about particular kinds of resources. You need people who have particular resources that you need to be able to achieve the task that you're talking about. So, you know, our funders, I just want to say again, that's a, a deep collaboration. The funding for, again, the Loose Project and for the uh, symposium series, funding is one form of collaboration. Technical expertise is another form of collaboration where you have people with particular kinds of expertise that you need to achieve, again, an idea or a goal. Both of those are, again, really critical and often really important, but I want to say I think there are hidden dangers in both of those two. If you're explicit about those, they can be very useful and very important. But often underlying those kinds of collaborations are power dynamics that end up having a certain kind of agenda, usually unspoken, sometimes spoken, where one of the, of the parties in those collaborations have more power and dictate a, a direction and dictate a, a foundation and a direction to go. Often unwittingly, I want to just say this, this is messy business. Right? I mean, there are intentional uh, manipulations, but I think those are more rare. I think it's really about the messiness of what does it mean to have to identify and, and address the dynamics of power that function in all parts of our lives, and certainly around these kinds of questions. There's a third form of collaboration that I think ideally cuts across when we do it well, is the, is the kind of collaboration that cuts across all of those others and defines it, and that's the the collaboration of complementarity. And complementarity in my understanding of it and in my experience of it through both this, this symposium series, uh, and then I want to speak in a moment about this work that we're doing with Oxfam, is what happens when you come to the table together and recognize that you don't know the things you need to know and that you deeply rely on the partnership of others to share information that you're not even sure what the parameters of that are. But you know that they have information and perspective and expertise broadly defined about what it means to say we are going to comp we have complementary skills that come together to really address a problem in a meaningful way. This question of religious, uh, uh, this question of local humanitarian leadership, I think is a problematic one. Even our language, we say, well, should, should um, international NGOs, should we um, empower local humanitarian leaders? Well, right away, we have a power dynamic there. Who are we in the international community to be empowering people on the ground who are the experts, really, in this? But the intention is there. The intention is powerful. What does it mean to say we will support them? Well, that's closer, I think, but we still we still have a challenge, I think, with that language. So I, I would like to invite the possibility of saying we, we, will, we, are, we want to establish a collaboration. And collaboration then means truly that people come together. And, and I want to also, it, with, without knowing what is going to happen when we join in that incredible opportunity. And I want to just use a very a comparative comparatively modest given the challenges that we're looking at with humanitarian action that we'll be focusing on today for the symposium. But it's a small slice and I just want to highlight it because I think it's, it was a powerful learning moment for me and I would like to share it. This particular, all of these symposium series are collaborations where we're bringing together people we know in the academy fundamentally. We cannot do this work without working and hearing from professionals on the ground 
about what they need and what are the challenges they face. Because otherwise we work in silos and the academy unfortunately works in silos very well. Uh, we so desperately, I think now more than ever in the world, certainly here in our own United States, we need to get out of our silos and we need to be working with people outside with that shared notion of collaboration. But I wanna just say this collaboration with Oxfam and with Luce has been the most profound one of my professional career because I don't know this field. Everyone in this room, I think, knows this field better than I do. Um, and I humbly rec rec recognize that. But it was Judy Beals, who was, in a, who was an Oxfam professional, who was a resident scholar here last year at Harvard, who ended up taking a class with me. We struck up a clear both friendship and mutual understanding of the different strengths that we bring to the conversation about uh, issues of religious literacy that we both care about. And I knew right away that in Judy, I had someone who knows so much more than I do, but whom I trust and whom I felt privileged to be in conversation with. Judy took this and ran with it. She took this, this idea of the possible collaboration that has led us to this research project and to this, to this symposium to start to write, to do a white paper, to reach out to Toby Volkman at Luce, who responded so generously with um, uh, saying, yes, these are interesting ideas. And I have to tell you, I felt excited and exhilarated and terrified. Because we're gonna have now, we're moving into a very public forum, and I, and our, me, my, me personally, our name, the Religious Literacy Project, Harvard itself, is now gonna be publicly connected uh, to embark upon work that really matters and that I don't know anything about and I don't know where we're going. And it was terrifying. It was scary. It really was. Um, but I cannot tell you that th how amazing it's been to work with Toby, to work with Carlos Mejia, who was also a, a, a fundamental uh, partner in this, to, to work with Judy, to then have the incredible privilege of working with Tara Gingrich, who's really been the principal um, scholar on this project, um, and Rob Broderick, who's also a research assistant, and, and our, own, our own Carly uh, Berriant, who's also much more skilled in this area than I am. And that true collaboration where we really, together, it was messy, trying to figure out what does it mean to do this together, what are we offering? Is this language work? I felt like at every turn I had to check in with them to say, does this language speak to the community that you know best? Uh, or is this wrong and are we getting it right or wrong? It took longer than it would if we were trying to be efficient. If we were trying to be efficient, I would find people who know everything I know and just ask them to do things that I know. So it's not efficient, it's messy, but that's what a true collaboration can provide. And I think that's the work what does it mean to step into those vulnerable spaces with people you trust but don't, and that bring something that you don't know, and to do that with, with heart, with courage, with humility, uh, and with vision. I think that's, that's the alchemy, I think, related to this challenging work that we do. And with that I wanna say, and I must acknowledge, this is, a, a, this is an important day here in the United States. Uh, we are changing administrations. We have had the most rancorous um, election season in potentially in history, but certainly in recent 
memory, we are a deeply fractured, deeply divided nation. And today at 12 o'clock, uh, the um, President Obama will step down and, and President-elect Trump will, will be our new President of the United States. And I want to say that whatever our political affiliations, and I will say from my own perspective, prior to whatever the results of the election were, I'm deeply concerned. I've been worried about this now for a long time because of the nature of the, of the rancor. It's not unrelated to the conversations we're having here. We have a lot to learn from so many of you who are here working in challenging situations of conflict, uh, of, of, uh, of uh, challenging resource distribution, of assumptions, of power dynamics. So I want to say thank you again that all of you are here. We have a lot to learn from you here in the United States, those of you who are working in other parts of the world. Um, and I'm sober to remember that as much as we are, many, many of us are frightened about, the, about how we will move from this very rancorous moment. Um, I think about um, Vinya's work in Sri Lanka. I think about uh, Sahar's work in Sudan. I think about the challenges that many of you have faced in, in working in Myanmar. Um, uh, we, it is frightening, but it's not, it's not as bad as many of, of what we know about what's happened in the world, and we, we can learn from you. So thank you for that. And then a final word before I move into some logistics. I just want to say that in marking this important day, we are going to be in rich conversations, but I am making the request, and I'm going to say it ahead of time because I don't want anyone to be offended, and it's not a partisan request, but at 12 o'clock, I am going to invite us um, into a moment of silence, silent reflection, to just, and please offer your hope for us, those of you here, uh, to heal these terrible wounds, to help give us hope and vision for what it means to move forward, and to use the remarkable energy that, that we have been able to generate here because of these deep complementary collaborations. So, um, so I, I will, I, I'm going to be moderating the 12 o'clock discussion, so please remember that I will be making sure that we try to uh, honor our time at that, and that will be right before our luncheon. And then finally, some logistics, really important logistics, and you probably have all been waiting for these. The bathrooms are down the hall and to down the stairs in the lobby entrance that you came in. Uh, and there is an elevator for those who might need assistance at the end of the hall to take you downstairs. But if you go down the stairs to the, uh, to the right and then to the left, there are restrooms down there. Our panels are uh, going to be uh, monitored by either myself or my colleague Steve Prothero, who's been such an important uh, partner and uh, consultant for this entire religious literacy project. His work in religious literacy is well known and, and just he's been a remarkable colleague and collaborator in this regard. And so either he or I will be moderating. We are asking our presenters to stay for the first panel because we have three presenters to stay within 15 minutes of their conversation and there are other panels to stay within 10 minutes of their initial presentations because we want to make sure that we open up the opportunity to have conversations with all of you. So please be prepared to uh, participate in those conversations, to be uh, active, engaged. That's why we call this a symposium and not a conference. Um, and including, I'd like to invite uh, those of you who are online, uh, we do have people following the Twitter feed, so if there are others who'd like to also participate, 
please share your questions and we will try to also inc include those. Um, and I think I have actually done everything. So with that, I will um, invite our panelists to come up and I will uh, turn the mic over to my colleague, Steve Prothero, who will introduce our distinguished panelists for our first conversation about humanitarian action and infectious disease. Thank you. Welcome, this, uh, this is our, our panel on uh, Ebola and HIV AIDS, the humanitarian crisis of infectious disease. And uh, we have three panelists. Um, we have decided not to do fulsome um, introductions today. I was, uh, I was admonished for my long, lengthy <laughs> introductions last time, so I'm going to say people's names. And you can, uh, you can read all the fancy things about them in the in the uh, brochure. So uh, we, uh, we have Catherine uh, Marshall here. I believe she's going to start. We also have Jean Duff um, closest to me and uh, Rudamar Bueno de Faria as well. So uh, we'll start with Catherine Marshall. Thank you. Well, good morning and let me thank everyone for all the support and for bringing us together uh, on this auspicious day, shall we say. Now we're talking today about health and specifically about um, two uh, devastating diseases, uh, but more generally, in the exploration of how religion, uh, religious issues and development and humanitarian and even peace building come together, health has been one of the most important and probably the most productive entry points. Uh, it's not everyone fully realizes it, but for many religious traditions, Healthcare is an ancient and a, a modern, a very current uh, priority. There was one cardinal I spoke to who said, the hospital is our cathedral. Uh, many religious groups run large networks of hospitals, clinics, uh, nursing homes, uh, you name it. Uh, there clearly are links between uh, religiously linked behavior uh, and health, whether it's nutrition, um, and many other forms of behavior. Uh, the, there is also an important set of advocacy. Uh, um, I will never forget uh, Father D'Agostino, a Jesuit, uh, who railed uh, about the importance of pediatric uh, ARVs uh, during the HIV AIDS crisis uh, in various settings and clearly uh, had an impact. Uh, but there also are some challenges, um, just some to, to mention the, some, some stories about religious uh, approaches to mental health uh, are hair-raising. Um, there are some of the world-class facilities, um, and I think Vinya Ariadne is an example uh, in Sri Lanka, but there are also many much more medi mediocre uh, facilities. So, uh, there also are a lot of tensions around the role of religious health care, including, for example, Catholic facilities in the United States, uh, in a contemporary modern approach to both medical care and public health. Um, just There's also a lot of confusion, if I can call it that, around the topic. 
on in looking at numbers about the share of healthcare in Africa, I have seen and know, I've tried to trace them, figures of the share of religious uh, healthcare that range between seven and 70%, which suggests that there are major issues of definition, but also a failure to appreciate the enormous country diversity. So we're looking today at um, two uh, classic examples, um, which in some ways um, illustrate also the complexity of what we mean by humanitarian. So HIV AIDS uh, and Ebola. Um, HIV AIDS uh, is now, what, 36 years since it was formally identified, uh, and it has uh, caused tens of millions of deaths, uh, people living with HIV AIDS. It's uh, been devastating for countries and for uh, development. Uh, and religious uh, groups have been involved from the very beginning, uh, both positively and negatively. Positively, the enormous compassionate care of people in communities. Negatively, just as an example, pastors who refuse to bury um, victims of HIV-AIDS in the churchyard. But it shows, I think, the enormous evolution over time uh, because attitudes towards HIV-AIDS today are fundamentally different than they were in the beginning. But it is what we would call a protracted humanitarian crisis. It is humanitarian in the sense of the human impact of uh, the fact that, in a sense, it's a bolt out of the blue. Um, it took a long time for people to cope with. But it, it has, through this whole 36-year period, um, transformed, in many ways, the people thought, the way people thought about religious engagement. Uh, the Ebola crisis, on the other hand, was a sudden bolt. Uh, essentially, the Ebola crisis in West Africa was a history of a year, uh, something over a year. Uh, and it was a more classic humanitarian crisis in the sense that it demanded an enormous uh, international uh, response uh, and has led to all sorts of reflection. So I'm going to focus on the Ebola uh, story. Uh, one of the documents that was prepared was also supported by the uh, Luce Foundation. Uh, is um, a teaching case study designed for public health, for development specialists, for humanitarian, etc. Uh, and I'm, I mention that because I heartily welcome feedback. Uh, is this uh, a contribution to religious literacy, shall we say? Uh, how could we do it more effectively? But it is, in a sense, an effort to present both the very technical um, aspects of this crisis, but also the story, always with the question, which is the central question, what's religion got to do with it? Why does that matter? And what does that mean in terms of policy? So uh, the uh, story uh, in terms of the religious actors, looking at it from the religious actors, when the Ebola crisis broke out, it really was three months between the first identified case and the time that it was identified internationally uh, as, um, as a crisis. They'd never seen Ebola in that part of Africa, in West Africa before. It was in very remote areas, uh, which had been devastated by war and political turmoil. Uh, and so 
For a long time, people got sick and died and it spread without anyone knowing. But of course, it was religious figures within communities who, first of all, were running a lot of the clinics and the, and the healthcare, but who also were comforting uh, the dying. And um, even from the beginning, there were orphans and, and really dealing with, with the impact of the disease. But there are a few months into it, um, it was recognized that the countries could not cope. Uh, and there were urgent appeals for uh, international assistance for um, the Ebola. And billions came, uh, came into it. We're talking about a lot of money, US military, um, um, technical specialists, some of the world's leading health specialists uh, were part of a dramatic response. Uh, it was quite a long time, several months into the crisis. It started maybe in December was the first case, and it was really July, August, before there was a conscious recognition and discussion in the major uh, leaders of the response, both nationally and internationally, that the religious figures might have something systematic to do with it. Uh, we also, the reason we got involved in the case study was sitting at Georgetown University, where I am now, and really working with the World Bank, which was one of the uh, leaders. We started making the case that, that they should start looking at the religious leaders immediately and collected information about what different NGOs were doing, etc. cetera. Uh, and so we basically um, put together a running story, which is in part the basis for this case study. But essentially, it was too complicated for people to deal with systematically. I talked to a lot of the people involved. Uh, nobody had an idea of how the religious composition of the area was. And there were some of the big NGOs, World Vision, um, Caritas perhaps more than any other. Samaritan's Purse had one of the first um, victims. Uh, but, but nobody knew how, how they, from outside at least, how the Muslim communities, which were in fact the majority, particularly in Guinea, but very important in the other countries, how they were involved and in reacting. Uh, and so there was no silver bullet. There was no easy. There were interfaith groups, but they'd been set up for the peace processes. And they were not equipped to deal with these very complicated health issues. And so a lot of pastors, in fact, had very negative impact and reactions in the beginning. This was God's will, um, uh, urging people to touch each other. And one of the features of, of Ebola is that it is spread by touch of, with bodily fluids. Uh, but it, uh, it was not until a specific issue, which is well known in the medical community, uh, which is that the burial of bodies is critically important. So they, um, you've all, I'm sure you remember the spacesuits, the um, protective gear that people wore. They came and they took bodies and either buried them abruptly or cremated them in Liberia. Uh, and it became clear that this was first a major source of transmission. I mean, hundreds of people getting um, Ebola because of touching bodies. Uh, but it was also a source of great anger in communities, that people were actually digging up uh, bodies uh, that had been buried in order to give them proper burials. So it was a sort of a, a bolt. I mean, it was a, a shock for uh, the public health specialists to realize 
that they had to have a much better approach to burials, and therefore there was a, a systematic effort to develop a new protocol for dignified burials. That involved the religious leaders as well as families uh, and communities. So in that sense, there was an awareness, a systematic awareness around that issue, and to a lesser degree around uh, communication. Uh, I do want to mention one other thing and then come to the lessons, that the level of fear was, was enormous. You can remember it in the United States. People closed schools because someone had been to Malawi, which had absolutely <coughs> nothing to do uh, uh, with the disease. But I, I talked recently, the Vatican had a lessons learned effort in December, and Sister Barbara Brilliant is a nun, uh, who was active through the whole thing. Her interview, by the way, is on the Berkeley Center website. Uh, but Sister Barbara was saying she ran a nursing school, that she talked to uh, uh, her, her staff and said, why are you so terrified? You hid your husband under the bed when the soldiers came. You, you went out to the market when there were uh, shots fired. Why, why is this so much more traumatic? And the answer was that it was so surprising and it came so much out of the blue uh, that it, it, was, um, it was different. And therefore, she describes one of the lasting impacts as Ebola went down is an enormous accentuation of a pattern of trauma uh, and uh, a need for, for soul searching uh, and for a constant, a new level of support. So, here is this experience, religious leaders, the most visible, the most present in communities. Uh, most of the buildings have more buildings, they have more groups than anything else in all three countries, Liberia, Sierra Leone, and Guinea. Um, played vital roles, running a significant part, but we don't know the numbers, of the health uh, system, um, et cetera. What, what are the lessons? Um, and I do want to make a first comment that in the international review, and that includes the Harvard Institute of Global Health and the London School of Tropical Medicine, did a big review of the lessons from Ebola, which does not mention religious figures and does not mention the community. It's basically dealing with the international response. Uh, if you look, and I've done searches uh, for this, uh, for the case study and articles in, in a number of the other lessons learned, uh, there really, you cannot say that the international health community, either medical or public health, has really learned lessons that relate to the religious engagement, which I think is very frustrating because there was a systematic effort to do that. Now, there are a lot of lessons learned exercises, some of which are uh, on the website, uh, and I think there have been a lot of lessons learned. Uh, but, uh, but I think we need to recognize that there still are large blind spots. Uh, in other words, as I look at it, one of the lessons is that if you, for people coming from outside, but I would also say this for the Liberian, Sierra Leonean, uh, and Guinean government, uh, that they did not have sufficient information about the religious composition, the demography, uh, to be able to respond uh, systematically. Uh, they need some kind of mapping. Uh, you need it, um, and, and you could see. It's not going to give you a silver bullet. It's not going to give you a phone list. But in this case, it was very complex uh, because you had the um, issues of uh, traditional healers, 
Uh, you had secret societies. You had dozens of Pentecostal churches. Even the Catholic Church, uh, the bishops ran each of their health facilities independently. Uh, a, a last comment, um, because I'm, I'm out of time. I do have lots of other lessons. But I, I think one of the lessons that's relevant to what we're doing is what Sister Barbara actually referred to in this Vatican meeting as the INGO mentality. So what does she mean? International NGOs. She said that in Liberia, and, and let's remember that a lot of the issues are about money. There were billions of dollars coming in, being spent. Um, all the organizations were getting money, supplies. Uh, what was really missing was a way to get that money to the communities. And Sister Barbara describes that there was a weekly meeting where everyone said, this is what's happening. This is Liberia only. And at first, it was all the big NGOs. And then finally, community groups, a few of them started coming because it was open and transparent. And they were finally getting maybe the $5,000 to do something at the community level. But it was not systematic. And now, in the post period, the post Ebola period, uh, in some senses, as she describes it, the NGO mentality is stronger than ever. That the, everyone wants to rebuild health services in um, these countries, and they're contracting, basically, with NGOs, which are either religiously linked or not. Uh, there are a whole range of them. Uh, and they take staff from the local groups and the local communities by paying them more. Uh, and essentially, they will leave, and the basic goal of developing a solid, a lasting, a sustainable healthcare system and disaster preparedness uh, is, to a large extent, out the window. So uh, I'm, I'm afraid that we have yet to help the WHO. Uh, the U.S. government, uh, the British government, the um, uh, other actors who responded and who did come to see the community uh, involvement as critical to combating uh, the crisis. Uh, we have yet to see them think in a systematic way about the questions I raised in the beginning. What's religion got to do with it? Why is it important? And what can you do about it? Thank you very much. Um, is it Jean next? Yes. Great, Jean Duff. Thank you. Returning. Oh, it's on. Great. Great. Good morning, everybody, uh, and uh, joining my colleagues. And thanks to uh, the Religious Literacy Program, to Diane Moore, uh, to Oxfam, uh, to Tara Gingerich, um, and to Stacey Nam, the Knowledge Manager for the Joint Learning Initiative, who's sitting over there, who um, supported me in this presentation. Um, I'd just like to start by saying that um, I'm speaking on behalf of the Joint Learning Initiative uh, on Faith and Local Communities. Um, the JLI, as we call it, is a collaboration between faith-based NGOs, both international and national. Uh, many of my board members are sitting in the room. Um, uh, we have uh, Anwar Khan, for example, Islamic Relief, um, uh, Vinya and Noboyuki, um, Catherine Marshall uh, and others are, are associated with uh, the project. The goal of the JLI is to gather evidence for faith groups' activity and contributions um, 
to uh, uh, the well-being of local communities when it comes to development and humanitarian work and to better communicate it to policymakers and to practitioners so that they may more fully and appropriately engage um, local religious networks um, in, the, uh, in the response um, for the well-being of communities. We work through learning hubs. We have a learning hub methodology where academics, policymakers, and practitioners gather around specific themes. One of them has been HIV. We have others in resilience and humanitarian disaster situations, um, in uh, immunization, in gender-based violence, uh, peace and conflict, uh, and one on mobilization of local faith communities. These are voluntary. Uh, so that when, when we said, Diane spoke earlier about collaboration, <laughs> JLI is about collaboration. These are voluntary, uh, almost entirely voluntary undertakings, uh, asking the question of what do we know uh, and how do we better communicate that. Um, we try to get the information out through conferences, uh, through forums, uh, through participation in, in activity like this, and having the privilege of advising uh, this project uh, since its early days has also been one of our works in the world. Um, uh, we uh, also support uh, partners in their efforts with regard to conferences. Uh, um, Soka Gakai will hold a, an important conference or participate in a conference on disaster risk reduction uh, in uh, Mexico City, and many of our partners will be joining uh, to present evidence there. We also support um, the distribution of evidence through journals. Uh, recently, uh, an issue on faith-based healthcare of the Lancet, uh, which called, caused many of us to nearly lose our lives, but that's another story. Um, I will uh, try to compliment Catherine's and uh, Rudelmar's uh, coming remarks, um, and uh, maybe between the three of us, we'll, we'll uh, give a mosaic for further discussion. Um, I'm going to talk about quickly three things. I'm going to build on what Catherine said and draw out some of the key elements of faith-based response to, particularly to Ebola, but referencing slightly HIV. Uh, I'm going to talk about the mechanisms, something about the mechanisms for how the faith communities were engaged in the response. And then I'm going to uh, briefly tag lessons learned. Um, uh, Catherine mentioned the scale of HIV, uh, the HIV issue in the Ebola epidemic, which of course began in 2013, uh, resulted in 28,000 people being infected and over 11,000 deaths. Uh, so uh, it, 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 was, it was massive and fast uh, and had considerable impact. The response, particularly the Ebola epidemic, makes a terrific case for our broader task here uh, in this symposium. Uh, about how to uh, basically can, can provide us with a basis for generalization uh, about uh, the engagement of local faith networks in the broader humanitarian response. And I think that's just to center us on why we're, why we're looking at this. Um, HIV and Ebola uh, have many common elements and common lessons for us. Um, they both involve profound ignorance. Um, they involve stigma. They involve discrimination. Um, they both involve the need, the solution to both, and the addressing the need involved the need for accurate in information, destigmatization, and community-based support. Um, they both require multidisciplinary approaches, combining uh, both the spiritual and psychosocial supports um, uh, to complement the biomedical and healthcare solutions. In terms of the key elements of faith response, and again, I'll particularly focus on Ebola here, I want to just highlight uh, four, uh, four large areas. Influence and access. We've already talked a lot about the influence and access uh, uh, that the faith community uh, offers, so I'm just going <coughs> to put that out there as a, play, a placeholder. Education. We talked some yesterday 
uh, about the support uh, of faith leaders um, through tailored uh, and religiously specific educational tools. Um, uh, we think particularly in this case about the development of um, uh, tools to support healthy practice, safe burial. Um, uh, we think about the Guide to Pastoral Care for Ebola Survivors um, that was produced uh, with leadership from, the, from Caritas, from the, the Catholic side. And we think about a whole range of um, uh, scripturally based um, uh, tools, sermon guides, um, and other communications that transmitted the spiritual message, the, me the messages of hope and supported faith leaders in their work. Um, Faith, the, the, the faith engagement basically involved a mobilization of four kinds of assets, four kinds of faith-based and religious assets. First, and Catherine mentioned these, health systems. Um, so uh, in, in Liberia, for example, faith-based healthcare, faith-affiliated missionary hospitals, faith-affiliated hospitals, account for between 20 and 30% uh, of care in, in Liberia. Um, uh, and and in, 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 Sierra, in Sierra Leone, um, uh, sorry, 20% 30, 30 of care in Liberia. Um, it, what was remarkable is that even though the systems, the healthcare systems were so strained, um, between, uh, I think it was 14 of the 17 Catholic hospitals um, remained open um, during, uh, during the epidemic. Um, the second kind of asset, the um, faith-based asset that was mobilized in the Ebola response was the mobilization of faith leaders and their congregational assets. Um, Sue Parry contri has contributed enormously to the, the knowledge base from her work on the ground. She was representing H uh, WHO, working with H WHO at the time. And she's provided us with some extraordinary estimates of the massive engagement of religious leaders. Um, in Guinea, um, the estimate is the engagement of 4,000 religious leaders. In Sierra Leone, 19,000 religious leaders. In Liberia, 200,000 religious leaders. The scale of the full mobilization um, is, is really quite extraordinary uh, and mirrored in those estimates. The third kind of asset that was mobilized was the um, uh, large networks of volunteers that faith-based organizations command, um, who were working house-to-house -house with family members and survivors. Um, in Sierra Leone, for example, estimates say that um, 1.6 million people were reached by 1,425 community volunteers working in that way. The fourth kind of asset that I would like to tag is the financial assets. Um, uh, the faith sector has, uh, in, in so many cases, its own financial and indeed community-based assets um, that uh, compensated and were drawn upon um, to, to compensate for the fact that they were largely excluded, or at least they were late to the table on, em on emergency resource allocations, as Catherine described. The other area of, of faith engagement was around advocacy. And we saw very active uh, advocacy uh, by, by faith leaders, both local faith leaders and national, around things like acceptance of survivors, uh, the reintegration and care of the 17,000 orphan children, um, faith leaders negotiated the access and protection of health workers who were being attacked by the community and negotiated with government um, bodies. Um, and of course they negotiate also um, for, for funding uh, and for continuation of funding, particularly in relation to healthcare and community system strengthening. I'd like to turn briefly to the question of how faith-based organizations were engaged. What were the mechanisms on the ground? Because this is a really, really key question and an important learning for our other work. 
Uh, and I would like to flag the important role of faith-based intermediaries um, in the support and mobilization of local faith communities. So first of all, the role of faith-based organizations participating in multi-sector uh, collaborations and, and working groups. For example, um, they supported the, the, the creation of the WHO Safe and, Dig Safe and Dignified Burial Protocol uh, was co-created uh, by the World Council of Churches, by Caritas, World Vision, Islamic Relief, and WHO, UNAIDS, uh, the International Federation of, of Red Cross. So the, 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 there, was a, there, was, there was there uh, an active collaboration. Secondly, uh, I would refer to what I call local coordinating, religious coordinating mechanisms. Uh, organizations like the, uh, the Interreligious Council of Sierra Leone, which as Catherine mentioned, built, uh, showed such leadership uh, in, in, uh, within the history of uh, conflict resolution and peacemaking, um, and was already established and had credibility. Um, we should note the role of individual faith leaders who are very prominently known, particularly as a result perhaps of peacemaking activities, people like Sheikh Conte um, in Sierra Leone, uh, who personally provided uh, tremendous leadership. Um, uh, Faith-based organizations came together to form um, the Social Mobilization for Respectful Burials Through Faith-Based Alliance Consortium. That's a mouthful, um, and it, it, was, it, it was a large number of people. They took charge of more than 50% of the burial teams and are reported to have buried over 36,500 people, uh, according to Sue Parry. So they, once they got going, and it took some time to get going, they certainly made a, a very substantial difference. Another group who were called Focus 1000 joined the Islamic Action Group and the Christian Action Group in Sierra Leone for Quranic and biblically-based training for religious leaders in all 14 districts of the countries. So again, a mechanism of bringing together uh, across faith lines for educational purposes. Uh, and finally, I just want to flag the vital role of faith-based international NGOs uh, as intermediaries in the mobilization of local faith leaders. So you've heard already Catherine's, some of Catherine's references, but clearly World Vision, Caritas, Islamic Relief, Samaritan Purse, Samaritan's Purse, and many others um, uh, were extremely involved in the, the brokering back and forth between international organizations, government bodies, uh, and local faith uh, communities. For example, the Channels of Hope, which is an expression of World Vision's um, uh, engagement with uh, multi-religious leaders, with technical support from WHO and UNAIDS, modified their Christian-oriented curriculum to be appropriate for other, other faiths uh, in, in addressing uh, Ebola. So just a quick tag on lessons learned, and again, I'll try and complement some of the things that Catherine has said. Um, uh, there are obviously huge implications for uh, increasing the capacity for engagement of faith actors in humanitarian response to infectious disease e epidemics, and uh, some lessons learned uh, for, for how to fully mobilize local religious assets would include um, the engagement of faith sector in planning, uh, emergency preparedness and decision making at both national and local levels, leveraging existing trusting relationships and structures. Secondly, mechanisms for the decentralization of disaster risk management must engage the faith sector. So this question of, of taking it out of HQ and, and out to the localities um, and, and uh, engaging the faith sector appropriately. And, f and finally, sort of a, as a third generalization, 
the distribution of emergency and recovery resources must include faith groups. Um, just looking specifically at uh, lessons learned for two classes, uh, secular actors and faith-based actors. Um, so secular actors, uh, as Catherine referred to, many of the bilaterals, the uh, UN agencies, uh, WHO, um, did not necessarily understand or fully appreciate the merits of engaging faith groups. Um, and when they did come on board, they needed help accessing uh, FBOs. Um, and uh, of course, in all of these generalizations, um, uh, I, I recognize that there's great variation in capability. But um, within, within these bodies. Uh, in terms of lessons learned vis-a-vis -vis secular actors, uh, the, the broad class of religious literacy uh, is certainly pertinent. I mean, this, this, this case really highlights uh, many of the discussions we've been having about religious literacy. And I have to say, I can't think of a better way to teach and to promote religious literacy than to teach the case study that Catherine uh, has overseen. It's an absolutely superb document. If you haven't had a chance to look at it, please do. And I would commend it as a teaching tool for religious literacy in this area. Um, so secondly, uh, in terms of recommendations around secular actors, to tap and strengthen existing internal capacity. Um, so in crises, existing institutional knowledge about faith engagement may not be visible or accessible to decision makers and to, to folks who are on the ground. So in very large institutions, and thinking, for example, in the UN, where, uh, which, is, which is so large, I mean, people in the UN may not be aware of the vast resource and treasure of information that Aza and her colleagues uh, have. So the question of raising the profile um, mapping and reinforcing and publicizing the internal assets of organizations. We talked yesterday about Oxfam's own internal learning uh, about its resources. So there are people within Oxfam who have a great deal of experience uh, in, in engaging uh, local, uh, local religious assets uh, who could well teach internally. So mapping and strengthening existing internal capacity. Building know-how about access. The question of with whom to engage, how to find them. Uh, Catherine has referred to mapping. Um, we feel strongly that this must be done in consultation with local faith actors. I mentioned yesterday that Sheikh Conte was saying famously, we don't want to be mapped. Um, we, want to, we want to collaborate on this. Um, so I, I think the, 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 it recommends the approach of providing support to religious and faith uh, networks to map themselves uh, and to basically uh, uh, do a better job of, of organizing themselves as a preparation um, for future engagement. Um, next, to systemize the study of what's working uh, by way of engagement with local faith networks. Study mechanisms of engagement, and, and that's certainly something at JLI um, we, we, are, we are advancing and, and trying to gather, uh, and we'll speak about um, at a forum in Sri Lanka in October 2017, um, when there will be a specific focus um, on uh, case studies and, and research that looks at successful and indeed unsuccessful Thank you. Methods of engagement uh, with local with local faith networks around humanitarian response, and then finally, in terms of the secular actors, actively consider innovative financing mechanisms that take account and can be adapted um, to faith networks themselves. 
Just very quickly to wrap up, uh, some lessons learned for faith groups themselves. Uh, we've talked about the concept of development literacy, um, about uh, the, 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 the tools and the skills and the experience that allow faith bodies, be they national or local, to navigate uh, within the context of international organizations, um, both secular uh, and public, uh, both um, uh, NGOs and, and public sector. Um, secondly, uh, strengthening the role of faith-based intermediaries. Uh, I, I uh, have sketched how important the faith-based intermediaries have been in uh, helping to mobilize local, uh, local bodies. So faith-based intermediaries, both international, national, and local. Alistair, um, who I failed to recognize as a very important JLI partner earlier, yesterday spoke um, about the power of imagination, and he invited us to uh, prophetic imagination. Um, one of the recommendations um, and lessons learned uh, for faith groups is, is the area of development of theology uh, for faith-based interfaith and cross-sector collaboration. And finally, the smart leveraging of religious and faith-based financial resources for co-funding. I think that we can do a much better job in the faith community of taking the existing uh, wealth of uh, resources, um, both financial and other, and come bringing them to the negotiating table um, to uh, bargain uh, for co-funding with other organizations. Diane spoke earlier in, in the introduction here uh, eloquently about uh, collaboration. Lessons from Ebola starkly illustrate the necessity and the power of cross-sector multidisciplinary collaboration. So thank you all. And I just want to point out on this auspicious day, um, uh, you'll remember that um, I think it was the day after the election, um, uh, President Obama spoke to us about how the sun would come up in the morning. I looked for the sun this morning. I, I didn't see a great deal of sun. So I've put on my, my Finnish eternal sun <laughs> badge. And uh, uh, I um, uh, look to the light. So thank you all. Great, thank you. Um, next person to enlighten us is uh, Rudolmar. Thank you. What I would like to, to give to you today is a perspective of the World Council of Churches on these two specific uh, uh, cases, the HIV and AIDS and Ebola. But before that, just to recall what I mentioned yesterday in the evening that uh, about the historical engagement of faith-based or religious communities in uh, responding to in infection diseases. And that uh, goes back to the Byzantine monasteries providing assistance to people with le leprosy and uh, the plague in the 4th and 5th uh, century. Uh, but also the quarantine stations in the medieval uh, Europe where people were being uh, staying. The leper colonies in both in, in Asia and Latin America in the, in the 19th century. Uh, and the home-based care in Africa in the century 20 or 21st. Uh, but of course, uh, that doesn't mean that that was okay. I, I think that, as you know, religion is not uniform is, or monolithic. There is a, a variation of beliefs and also the practice that this uh, faith uh, interact with these situations as well. I would like to start with the uh, HIV AIDS journey in WCC. In the earliest 80s, the need for a faith response to AIDS became evident as the epidemic precipitated a crisis of normal, spiritual, social, economic, and political proportions. People of faith responding to the crisis could well follow 
the foundational teachings to promote love, kindness, and compassion. But uh, due to fear, ignorance, and moralistic interpretation of the uh, Holy Scriptures, many faith communities stigmatized, excluded, and harmed people living with HIV and AIDS. You know that. It was uh, in 1983 that the uh, World Health Organization, WHO, uh, asked to the WCC to raise awareness among the churches regarding the emergency disease at that time called AIDS. Uh, the WCC uh, took this uh, and uh, organized a first conference on AIDS that was in, in 1984 in Geneva. But facing intensive challenges, the process was kept on track, mainly because of the commitment of the staff, um, members of WCC, rather than the constituency and the member churches. Uh, since uh, June 1984, uh, several consultations and discussion, discussions took place, and which led to the historic consultation had in Geneva also in 1986 on AIDS and the church as a healing community. There was a tremendous opposition from within the WCC and from various quarters of its constituency <clears throat> because of the, linkage, uh, of, of the linking the HIV uh, with uh, sim and homosexuality. Basically, that were the major two issues at that time. With these consultations based on the report and the dedicated and prophetic work of those involved, uh, the executive committee of the WCC, that's a number, reduced number of uh, uh, representing the, the wide membership, uh, released a, a statement making prophetic recommendations to churches to face AIDS with clarity of vision and in truth. People realized that religious people also during this process were infected by the virus and many of the members of the congregations as well. So they realized that they were experiencing stigma and discrimination within the churches, the communities, and often emboldening the struggle for human dignity and respect. This journey has raised profound questions regarding relationship between genders in the context of the patriarchy and differing power dynamics in society. It also forced faith communities to deal with human sexuality and <coughs> diversity. And that is happening. I could mention what WCC is dealing nowadays with human sexuality, with working groups and task force uh, to engage with all the membership on the topics. But most significantly, uh, the Welcomes of Churches has committed enormous resources in creating life-affirming biblical, theological, ethical, and liturgical literature and manuals in the HIV aid context, as well as addressing harmful cultural practice that enable vulnerability to HIV infections. In particular, WCC has focused on addressing sexual and gender-based violence and also issues related to masculinities and femininities uh, to foster gender justice and equality. And most of the programs are related to that in WCC nowadays. And WCC has one of the big programs globally it's related to HIV and AIDS and advocacy, not only in Africa, as it was established in the beginning, but worldwide. That is basically, we, we, we could see the importance of religious communities to overcoming and engaging and making a difference in terms of uh, reducing stigma and discrimination related to HIV and AIDS. I think that you have many studies and situations that can be used for that. Moving a little bit for the Ebola, the situation, I think that uh, Catherine has a uh, 
very, and also Jim mentioned about this situation. I would like just to correct one information, uh, Jim, that you said. Sue Perry, that you mentioned as a WHO uh, person, actually is from WCC. Oh. She was on the staff working with WCC and other religious communities. So maybe in the context of uh, isolating faith, the people that provide you this information was trying to <laughs> hide a little bit the importance of religious Thank in that you. exercise. So uh, uh, especially in Liberia and Sierra Leone, the religious institutions had long provided a substantial share of health care with a diversity of facilities. National health care systems were severely damaged or destroyed during the war, um, the civil war there. Weak health systems are common challenges for all three countries. In Liberia and Sierra Leone, you mentioned about not having the exact numbers of uh, clinics or health care. WCC has conducted a, a, a mapping just to identify uh, which clinics were um, run by uh, faith-based organizations. And in Sierra Leone, 46% of all clinics uh, were um, run by uh, faith-based organizations. And, uh, and, sorry, in Liberia, and 30% in, in Sierra Leone. Of overall health uh, the services, uh, basically are run by these organizations. In Guinea, uh, there is no a national faith or NGO coordinating mechanism, uh, but faith-based organizations run some health clinics and programs as well. I do not have the numbers for that. Well, basically the, uh, the Ebola situation, the lack of information about the disease, and as a consequence, the response of faith leaders was mixed because they they, as you mentioned, for some of them, it was suddenly coming uh, out of the blue without uh, having any uh, preparation for that. As the outbreak spread, draconian measures were taken, which went against cultural values and religious practices, and which resulted in denial of, of the disease and hostilities towards those who were seeking to contain it. Once they became, uh, the, the faith leaders and the communities became involved, uh, they play a vital role in overcoming the epidemic. Faith leaders use religious texts to interpret biomedical messages on the control and prevention of Ebola. Faith leaders accompanying burials and by conducting modified religious practices, communities began to comply with the urgent needs to save and dignify burials. Encouraged by, the, uh, by their religious leaders, uh, whom they trust, the people started participating in the revised burial practices and resistance declined rapidly. The participation of religious leaders was instrumental in, ar uh, in arresting the, the epidemic, in halting the uh, epidemic. The pre by preaching accepting uh, of Ebola workers and survivors and by role modeling it in, in religious services, faith leaders helped to diminish the, to diminish the stigma that was destroying community coherence at that time. Based on all these experiences, both in HIV and AIDS and um, in the Ebola crisis, uh, the, the colleagues in WCC working specifically on these two cases uh, made some uh, conclusions and recommendations about this process. Uh, I will just mention some of them because of time. A holistic approach to epidemics and emergencies is needed. We cannot work only from one perspective. And I think that in the meeting we had yesterday, previous to the conference in the evening, we have uh, addressed several dimensions of this need for a holistic approach for engaging humanitarian uh, assistance. 
The faith and religions of the community has to be valued, an asset of the community, and the humanitarian and health system should, should listen to, collaborate, and work with them to maximize the impact to interventions. The essential role played by faith and traditional leaders in social mobilizations and behavior change has to be recognized and should be mobilized. This engagement assists in the conceptualizations of behavior change messages. Also, interfaith approaches should be promoted with coherence in the messaging among major religions, uniting them in responding to common challenges. And strengthening faith literacy among humanitarian and health services staff. And that's very much related to the religious literacy that we are talking about here. To avoid instrumentalization of faith communities, we also discussed yesterday as a strategy to instrumentalize, to, to reach the communities and to be able to, uh, to deliver in an efficient way. And provide technical support so that the faith-based organizations can continue to build capacity to respond to crisis and assist to, uh, in recovery, including psychosocial support. And that, of course, it's not only the emergency. Now, you mentioned after, after Mark uh, is when that is more needed. And then addressing stigma and behavior change. Faith-based organizations and faith leaders need to be empowered to respond to ep epidemics and disasters. And uh, also uh, to encourage the establishment of, a, uh, of mutual accountability between religious, local communities, and governments on these topics. So basically, that is the, the experiences of WCC in that specific case. I was not personally involved in the response there, uh, but uh, I, I could accompany uh, how Sue, especially Perry, has uh, taken the lead in this process, pro, uh, project, engaging with different actors. And that was uh, very grateful for us to see the outcomes uh, after that. Thank you. Thank you very, thank you very much. Uh, we have. We have uh, maybe 15 minutes for uh, questions and answers, so please, uh, if you have uh, a question, we have microphones. Um, raise your hand, we'll find you, and please identify yourself and uh, pose your question, and we'll go from there. Any questions? It's Rob, over here. Right here. Hold your hand up. There you go. Rob Roderick. I'm independently uh, contracting with Oxfam America right now. Um, I'm very interested in this um, idea both uh, Catherine and Jean, you talked about um, the need for further mapping and, and Jean, I really liked your um, comment there on the need for self-mapping a little bit. Um, my question is, is if we're looking at mapping, uh, especially in, in light of preparedness, um, the question seems to me to be, okay, so uh, NGOs, secular and religious and otherwise, are, are doing um, varieties of mapping already, right? You know, and, and that usually is going to go along with uh, power analysis and cultural analysis, right? And they're certainly not going to be unaware that these religious communities are there, faith institutions are there, and so on. What strikes me is that somehow then the right questions aren't being asked, right? If, if the, real, the real problem then seems to be, okay, so we know that they're there, but they don't seem relevant, right, for some, some reason, right? We're not, and I, I, th I think really this, this Ebola and, and, and HIV AIDS case study shows that, well, we knew, we knew were there, they just didn't seem relevant for this, right? So what, what I'm really asking then is if we're going to conduct some sort of mapping, what questions do you see that, that need to be changed? Or, or what sort of framework 
ideal shift in terms of our mapping do you think need to be added on um, that go beyond the sort of traditional culture and power analysis that, that would make these faith institutions, faith communities, you know, make their relevancy seen? Maybe I'll take a first crack at it, and I know Catherine will, will add to it. But just from the point of view of, of, of my remarks about uh, self-mapping, um, uh, I, I think my first, my first instance, uh, my first action would be to ask the faith uh, leaders and the faith communities themselves what it was that, how they wanted to fill the gaps um, in their own knowledge of their own networks. Um, so, I mean, it, it goes to the, to the power dynamics that have been discussed throughout uh, our meeting here. And who's mapping and for what purpose. Um, so I think there are, there are many different kinds of mapping and many different reasons to map. Uh, I was really focusing in my remarks on this question of access. And in, a, in an emergency like this, uh, the need was to quickly uh, uh, access, identify who, the, who the, the faith bodies were, who the faith leaders were, uh, and, and get to them, connect with them, get messages to them, uh, find out what they needed. And, and um, in, a, uh, in, in, in an environment where you're looking and really prioritizing uh, the value and the leadership um, of local faith networks themselves, um, then the starting place uh, for filling in that, uh, that knowledge uh, uh, about the networks and the extent of the networks is with those people, and it's it's about wanting to know what they already have. Interreligious councils, for example, already have very extensive um, maps, quotes on quotes, telephone numbers, basically, and uh, you know ge geographic outlay. And it's, it's only, as Catherine I know will, will illuminate, it's, it's it's only a subsection of what we might think of as mapping, but it's a specific aspect of mapping that should not be done to religious communities. It should be done. They should be supported to do it themselves. These things go out of date as quickly as someone loses a mobile phone. And so um, if, if this is to be useful and lasting, it has to be a sustainable process. And sustainable process is one where the incentives uh, are local to keep it up. And uh, so it's not something that's done swoop in periodically, throw a lot of money at it with you know, a whole bunch of, of grad students going in. It, it's something that needs to be embedded. Uh, and become normative um, and become one of the assets of the community itself. I think the issue of questions, I think your, your focus on what is it you need to know and who needs to know it and how does one actually organize that. In this case, we have several layers. I mean, the first one, I think, is public health systems and, in a sense, the, the medical profession. Uh, how far are they aware of the significance of the religious contributions and participation, both in the actual running the facilities uh, and in the broader community engagement? And they need to want to know. Um, that's a, that's a, an issue that's uh, professional. I, WHO has had all kinds of sort of internal conflicts as to how they should think about religion. I mean, UN AIDS, because of the AIDS crisis, has been much more um, alert to the significance of religious communities. They're, plus, they're also an organization that has um, a really a, a, a systematic uh, participation by, by these actors. So those, I think it's, we're, we're really talking about habits of mind and culture and respect for certain kinds of knowledge. 
At the country level, um, in this case, and this is uh, part of the humanitarian challenge, is you don't plan and you don't expect for the Ebola crisis. Nobody... So there were no systems and no mechanisms, and a lot of the um, organizations that existed simply hadn't been developed and, and kept up to date for this particular purpose. So I think it puts a big focus on disaster preparedness at the national and at the international level, where, and this is my disappointment in looking at some of the sort of global lessons learned, that they have not focused on you know, we really should have focused more on mechanisms to reach communities, to get information from communities, uh, and specifically to engage the religious leaders. I, I think another issue which is very much uh, a concern of um, the so-called, I mean, the, the word international community is a very dangerous um, term, uh, but in any event, in this case, there was a sort of huge coalition uh, that mobilized in order to deal with what was seen as a global threat that was centered in, in these few countries. Uh, the, the need to try, when engaging religious communities, really to be um, unbiased. Uh, and in this case, the Muslim issue, I mean, one of the features of the uh, institutional structure is that there are far more organizations that have a strong Christian character uh, that do not include a lot of the Pentecostals, much less the Muslim communities, which are the majority uh, in this particular set of countries. And so the, that is, I think, a part of the knowledge bases that you do want to, to reach beyond. I mean, to reach the secret societies, there were anthropologists who had studied it, but how do you tap that? I mean, there are all sorts of, of areas of knowledge. There were um, the diaspora communities. Clearly, were getting phone calls every single day. They knew a lot. You could, if you'd had a system set up, you could have benefited from from that through religious networks. So, um, so, so I think that the the issue, and and I I know because I worked. Uh, for those of you who don't know, I was in the World Bank for many years, uh, working on uh, development programs. And one thing that's sort of imprinted in my mind is during the East Asia crisis of um, 1996 uh, to 98. Uh, it, the so social safety nets were non-existent, and it was pretty clear that religious institutions could have provided. But the relationships had not been built. Uh, the knowledge level with in Indonesia, Anu Muhammadiyah, and some of the other organizations. And as a result, the safety net programs did not take them into account. In other words, that's a historical fact, because the knowledge base was not there. So. I mean, part of our religious literacy, if you call it, or our mapping, is designed to find out what is the kind of knowledge that organizations within the UN system, bilateral agencies, NGOs, private sector, foundations, all of the complex actors who are involved in the SDGs, the Sustainable Development Goals, what is the kind of information that they need and that they can digest? And we need a lot of feedback on that. And of course, it's different for every situation, which is part of the problem. Uh, but unless they have a certain level of information, 
and assurance of things like avoidance of bias towards Christian organizations, assurance that the issue of proselytizing, the issues of excluding women, in other words, no, you know, if you have groups of religious leaders who don't bring women to the table, the credibility goes out the window. Uh, so those are, those I think are, it's a, a broad answer to your question. Dan? Thank you, really, really fabulous set of comments. I just had a, just a, one follow-up question. So uh, in earlier conversations about uh, the nature of which symposium we were gonna focus on, we actually started with the notion of thinking about global health or public health. Uh, but we found very few avenues of working with public health uh, and global health officials who really uh, took seriously the role of religion. So I'm just wondering, do you all have, uh, especially in this context, so that the nature of religion is usually or often uh, associated very negatively with those communities? And I'm just wondering if you have any experience or avenues or suggestions you might uh, make to help, again, sh open the doors to shape a more complex understanding and highlight the positive roles as well as the negative. Again, we, I think we tend to move either or in this conversation, but I think it's so critical to to again challenge the um, singular understanding of religion, whatever it is, and in this case, I think from the health communities uh, negatively, and so we wonder about those kind of bridges. Well, let me let me start, and then Jean also has a lot of ex both of us have been grappling with the, these issues quite extensively, as as have you actually. The World Council of Churches has a long history of involvement in global public health uh, policy. I, the thing I want to emphasize is first that it varies enormously by country. And I gave you those crazy figures in the beginning of estimates going from seven to 70%. Um, and that's because in some countries, basically the religious institutions are really not very involved in the formal healthcare system. Whereas in others, um, DRC for example, they're largely dominant and they're part of the formal government policy. But the MOUs, the Memorandum of Understanding with um, religious communities, are, are, are different from, from country to country. And it is, I think it's particularly dramatic in Africa, much less now in Latin America, much less in Asia. But it, it varies. I mean, Indonesia has huge religiously run health systems that are recognized and that are part of um, public policy, et cetera. Um, so I think that that's, that's a fact. Um, WHO has a very complicated history uh, with, um, with um, religious organizations and with um, civil society more broadly. And it, it does relate to an issue we've touched on but haven't gone into very much, which is the civil society space, which is, um, and it is one of the beefs that people have that the minute you have a government involved, um, they want to run the whole system. And so the assumption is that healthcare is either going to be government facilities, and, and we have this debate in this country, uh, or it's going to be um, private, uh, private, private actors. And sort of, it's the same with education, the sort of discovering that there's a whole set of worlds in between is important. Um, an, an issue, I don't know, I'm going to kick this one to you, Jean, but there's been a lot of discussion about, about definitions um, and data. In other words, is the data that's collected, and I, you notice I used far fewer numbers than Jean did because I basically don't trust them. Um, I've had too much experience with, you know, finding contradictory numbers, but um, 
in any event, it's, it, it's a very, it's a minefield. Thank you, Catherine. I wonder if, if Rulemar would like to yeah. just weigh in. I know we're coming short on time. I, if there's time, I'd love to pick that up. Thanks. Okay. Yeah, basically, uh, just re responding, the WCC has a long-standing cooperation with WHO, and actually WCC was the first non-government organization to be part of, uh, I don't recall exactly the structure, but it was a kind of a part of the board in interacting on issues related to, to uh, global health. And uh, especially with uh, UNAIDS as well. That was a very close and concrete cooperation, not only at global level, but at regional and national level. And, uh, and that, of course, this uh, uh, long-standing cooperation has opened opportunities also to engage with other UN agencies, um, like the uh, ILO, not specifically on health, but it's also connected. In some country programs, they have this connection as well, uh, working, uh, related to the work as well. And uh, recently, uh, since three years now, with UNICEF, focusing on the children and adolescents, but also including health uh, dimensions. But uh, for me, the big challenge is how we will move from this global uh, influence in terms of policies and also probably some corporations in terms of projects, like the, the one on Ebola or HIV and AIDS with UNAIDS, uh, going down to the communities themselves. How, how to foster this cooperation at national level with government, civil society, and the UN agencies? That is the big challenge and the opportunities there as well. I think that the uh, 23rd Agenda for Sustainable Development is calling for this kind of partnerships. And, uh, and that is the moment that also religious needs to play this role in there. I'll just say to tag for further discussion that there is a growing body of evidence on the religious determinants of health and on religious impact on attitude, health-related attitude and behavior change. And we delighted to unpack that offline. Great. Um, we have unfortunately run out of time for this panel, so I'd like to thank uh, the panelists. I'd like to thank all of you uh, for coming. We are going to take a short break, is that right? And then we'll reconvene uh, here in uh, 15 minutes. So thank you very much for your insights and your expertise. Thank you.